a sermon that I was working on with the, the uh, genealogies of Christmas, a very interesting uh, look, and I think uh, Dave, or excuse me, Tom gave out something in Sunday school from the throne of David forward, and the fact that both Mary and Joseph are in the line of David, that's why, of course, they went to Bethlehem to be taxed. But an interesting uh, review of that, and uh, as we turn our attention to Christmas. There is an often, so we're in Nehemiah chapter 13. There is an often repeated test, if you will, experiment, with a frog placed into very mild water. You've heard this, right? And by a fraction of a degree... Each second, that temperature is increased until after about an hour and a half, what has happened? He dies. He's been cooked alive, right? Now, you drop that frog into that same hot water, he's going to do everything he can to thrash his way out. But gradually turning it up without even knowing, he's cooked alive. Well, this is a perfect illustration of the mesmerizing effect of sin's clutter in our life. The pleasures of sin can slowly strangle the spiritual strength from the Christian until you are simply rendered incapable of doing what you know you should do, but life keeps you from it. Satan seldom appears like a fire-breathing beast, right? I mean... Any of us thrown into a circumstance with a fire-breathing beast, right, with horns on his head and a pitchfork in his hand, we'd all say, that's scary, and we'd run the other way. But more often than not, Satan appears as a, I was thinking of a friendly-faced, long-haired, bearded man. But yeah, an angel of light, but more often than not, it's in a fashion that we aren't afraid of. We get comfortable with and degree by degree until we end up in a place where we think how did we get here well as we come to the last chapter of Nehemiah we find that within just a few short years for all the good that's been accomplished their homes are cluttered the ways of the world taken over one small thing at a time and the sad part is no one even noticed until Nehemiah comes back after a, maybe a couple of years of absence and he comes back. They drifted along doing the comfortable things until they were no longer able to do the necessary things. How could this be? What occurred between the revival that we've read about in the last two or three chapters and all the great exciting things that have been happening? Now how could it be that we would find them now so far drifted that they cannot even serve the Lord. What would be the cause that by the time we get to verse 8, Nehemiah will show up on the scene and he says, it grieved me sore. Well, somewhere after the completion of the celebration, Nehemiah had left Jerusalem. You may recall verse 6, he'd gone back to the Artaxerxes, the king. Do you remember the whole story? Because he had been the king's what? Cupbearer. Remember that? Remember that story? He wasn't like released, like, okay, don't ever come back. Remember, this was a temporary appointment. I'm going to give you everything you need, give you all your supplies. You go do your, your job, this burden of your heart, and then you come back. And Nehemiah had gone back 
to serve the king. And in Nehemiah's brief absence, it's all it took for Satan to bring together his evil intentions. In the same way, Moses came down from the mountain only to discover how quickly the heart of man had been turned away. The way that Noah, after how many years of preaching and all the truth that his family understood to be betrayed by his own family after coming out of the ark, after Elijah called down fire from heaven, right? You remember that story? Wow, that was so great. And we find him after that pouting in pity under a tree. Peter walked on water. And within just a few short weeks, denied Christ. Well, isn't that just like human nature to let us down on the heels of some victory and most often settles into the clutter, or we might call it the baggage of our life? Well, it was on such a day that they read in the book of Moses, right, verse 1, in the audience of all the people. It was a day most like any other day, probably an anniversary celebration as Nehemiah would go back now to celebrate Everybody's pretty excited about, you know, that everything's accomplished and done. And it's the same way that if you have been gone, do you remember when you were a child and you were visiting for the holidays some family member? Some of you look like you have no idea. And, and, your, and your aunt would say to you, like my aunt Isabel, she would say to you, Oh, Jimmy, you've grown so much and pitch your little cheek. You never had that happen to you, right? When people are away and come back, they're the ones that tend to notice, right? How much weight you've put on, oh no, I mean, how you've changed, how you've grown, how things have changed, what's new, what's old. Well, by the time we get to verse 1, he's come back, they're reading, because they've met not the children of Israel, he tells this story about the Moabites who did not meet the children of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. You remember the whole story. You can read the story in the book of Numbers 23, 24, how they deceived Israel. And so the story of Balaam can be found there. The Israelites read the account and decided that the thing to do was to obey the word of God. They have now intermarried with the people of the world, the Ammonites in particular. The Ammonites are the sworn enemy of Israel. And the Moabites, God had forbidden that, and the children of Israel realized that we have to kind of make some changes, and they start putting people out. When people get together, in particular in marriage, and, and you say, how in the world are you jumping to this? Well, by the time you get to the end of the chapter, you're going to see. When people get together in relationships and family and the differences of getting together don't always show up, right, at first. It's not until you start to budget money, right, how are we going to spend our money? It's not until you, you start to discipline the children. It's not until you start to decide where are we going to go to church do the differences start to show. By then our lives are so cluttered with baggage, that we end up in conversations that we could before have never imagined we would have to have. And the first thing I want to unpack in this baggage is the compromised companions, verses 4 
down through verse uh, 9. And before this, Elisha the priest. Now remember these characters. Elisha, Tobiah, and Sambalat. Sambalat is the sworn enemy of everything that's been going on. Tobiah is a bit of a wishy-washy guy. And Eliashib is the high priest. Having oversight of the chamber of the house of God was allied unto this wishy-washy Tobiah. And he, the high priest, had prepared for him, Tobiah, a great chamber where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, the oil which was commanded to be given to the Levites, and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests, where they were supposed to collect the offerings. He thinks, oh, it's a good idea to give a place for my friend. But in all this time was not I, Nehemiah, at Jerusalem, for in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I came unto the king, and after certain days obtained a leave. You remember that whole story. So he comes to Jerusalem. He saw the evil that Eliashib had did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff. We see that, remember, in the New Testament when Christ came into the temple then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offerings and the frankincense, etc., etc. So Eliashib is Tobiah's friend. But Tobiah has been seen hanging out with Sanballat, the sworn enemy. And Sanballat was the one who had done everything to undermine the work of God in Jerusalem. Elisha was in charge of the local church, the temple. He took a room that had been used to store offerings, turned it into an apartment for his friend Tobiah. And guess who was among the first visitors to Tobiah? His friend, Sanballat. And you just know that Sanballat was going to show up at the back door with some of his friends. You ever been the friend of two people that have nothing else in common but that they talk to you about the other person? That's what's going on here. Tobiah's the middle guy. Eliashib the high priest. Sambalat the sworn enemy. And you've got this middle guy that's like, you know, listening to both sides. Eliashib the high priest. Sambalat the chief enemy of Nehemiah had a common friend, Tobiah. Sambalat was allowed to take up space, clutter, if you will, the very temple of God. When you make room in your life for people that oppose what you say you believe, you're not being evangelistic, you're asking for trouble. So parents, we have to take responsibility, we got to know our child's friends, right? Young people, you have to be discerning about who you may date, where you may hang out, what you do. Be careful who and what you allow into your home, into your circle of friends. It's the principle from 2 Corinthians of the unequal yoke. It is absurd to suggest that righteousness could have fellowship with unrighteousness. In fact, John goes so far as to say in his letter in 1 John saying that 
that you cannot have fellowship. Light cannot have fellowship with darkness. In fact, if you find yourself in fellowship with darkness, then you're a liar and you're not doing the truth. You have no fellowship with God. Such clutter only ever compromises the believer, seldom, if ever, changes the unbeliever. And so if you've ever heard the term evangelistic dating or whatever the circumstance of your life, it's not a good idea. Well, moms and dads, it's going to be difficult, but when it happens, you've got to step in. I know it's tough, whether it's a mom and dad in a, in a relationship or whether it's in your own relationship or it's in family relationships, it's going to be tough, but it's never going to be easier than it is now. You've got to step in. Maybe, as Nehemiah said, you've got to pack up and get out. How many times have I heard a dear mother say, she's so good for him? Or they seem so happy together, and then one degree at a time, they end up in a place that you could have never imagined. And we'll see it by the end of the chapter, if you think I'm just making this up. Another bit of baggage that sometimes we have to go through is a financial fiasco. The one grows out of the other, verse 10. And so I perceive that the portion of the Levites that was supposed to be stored in that room that now Tobiah lives, right? They hadn't been receiving him. For the Levites and the singers that did the work, they had left to go back to their fields because there's no money in the temple to take care of them can't blame them then contended I with the rulers and said why is this the house of God forsaken and I gathered them together and set them in their place and brought in Judah and the tithe and corn the new wine the oil and the treasuries he restores it all back so you consider how the one leads to the other and you'll see it as we go through then the, a third circumstance and then the final where was Tobiah's apartment it was in the temple where the were to be stored so this friendship had kept them from storing up the offerings for the Lord's work as they once did you can't blame the priests that now go back to work in the fields I mean they got to feed their family and so you can't blame them but how did we end up here and finally the temple workers had to leave and get a job they had to return to their fields in order to provide for the needs of their family as uh, for the work of the temple well, they just didn't have the time. It takes money for ministry, you know that, whether it's caring for the needs of your pastor, which I appreciate, sending out the missionaries, buying supplies for our church, or just paying the light bill. If anywhere along the way the people of God decide to make room in their life for the clutter of this world, it starts to take up resources that once had been given to the Lord. And you'll say to me, Pastor, I just can't right now. And I can't blame you. You got to care for your needs. But how did we get there? As important as your child's relationship is to friends, so is the importance of your relationship to the resources of your life. So the stuff of Tobiah, it was called in verse 8, just simply the stuff of Tobiah. It's the idea of clutter. It's not necessarily bad stuff. It's just more stuff. <laughs> it's unnecessary stuff. As we live in, right, the stuff mart of the world, right? We just got more stuff. Well, the stuff of this life can often become clutter, takes up more and more of our time, more and more of our attention, leaving less and less time for the Lord, because after all, wherever our treasures are, there will our heart 
follow after, right? And that's why it's so important, as Hebrews says, learn to be content with such things as you have. Well, the love of money, the pursuit of stuff will only ever clutter your life until you're no longer able to serve the Lord as you once thought you would. Timothy calls it, or Paul, the love of money, which he says will pierce you through with many sorrows. Well, there's a third bit of baggage that we might stumble over. It's a secularized Sabbath. Now, this one, you know, I know it's old-fashioned. You know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, Dad wouldn't let me go out and play ball. You couldn't, you couldn't go out and do stuff. Uh, you remember the blue laws we used to have in Delaware County, right? You just you couldn't go out and shop. Or at least then it was like you couldn't go out and get alcohol, I think, on, on Sundays. So it's secularized Sabbath. Just a couple of verses. I won't read them all. But beginning with verse 15. So in those days saw I Judah, some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves, lading asses, as also wine, grapes, figs, and all manner of burdens. Remember the, the victuals, all the things by which they could make money, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I testified against them in the day wherein they sold these victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also, which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and Jerusalem. I mean, it's just a big day of getting together. So why not make some money on it? Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus and did not our God bring all this evil upon us because of this? Yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So the church should become a marketplace in order to survive. Remember, the more room you make for the stuff of this life, the less room you have for God. So once again, the problem was caused by the previous problem. Because when there's not enough supplies to keep the temple open, then they began to resort to all sorts of other means to make ends meet. It's a shame when churches begin to cancel programs or we start to have bake sales, you know, to make ends meet. <laughs> or bingo nights. Worse yet, cut support for missionaries in order to just survive. You may recall that Jesus came upon the same sort of problem in Matthew chapter 21. What did Jesus do? Same thing Nehemiah did. When he threw them out of the temple, Jesus turned over the tables, threw them out of the temple, said, you've made my the Father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. Now, why is that? Because everything we have belongs to God. For the Christian, you have to live a life in recognition that all I have is the Lord's. For the unsaved person, you may think that you own it all, but the devil really has it all. And when the devil has his way in your life, this final bit of baggage that you never saw coming and you'll never be able to get rid of. Domestic disobedience. Verse 23. Now in those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod and Ammon and of Moab and their children spake half the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Remember, he loved many wives. 
Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil and to transgress against our God and marrying strange wives? One of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. Now, track this. One of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was now son-in-law to Sambalat, the Horonite. And I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Remember, all these problems started with a friendship, didn't it? I mean, just a friendship. Eliashib, friend of Tobiah. I mean, uh, the high priest, friend of Tobiah, friend of Eliashib and Samballot. So now we have Samballot, his son, married to... Sam Ballot's daughter. They seem happy, right? Soon enough, Elisha, the chief priest, and Sam Ballot, the chief enemy of God, will share something else. Grandchildren. And how many times I've seen leaders in the church back down on, on very important issues, but when our children and our family are wrapped up in things of the world. It's hard now. I find it hard. It's hard now to take a stand on the things and the principles of God's word because our families, my life, your life, your circumstance, everyone thought their family differences wouldn't matter. In fact, a lot of people thought it was nice how the marriage made for peace. People for the bride said, he makes her happy. People for the groom said she brings out the best in him. But when families disagree about their religion, about eternal values, one of two things will always eventually happen, especially after the kids come along. Number one is compromise. You'll have to. You'll have to compromise, and who am I to say anything different? But we begin to agree to accept things that we would have never otherwise accepted. For sake of keeping peace as we gather around the Christmas tree. Or, and or, just fighting. Everybody has disagreements, but when the grandparents can't understand why you'd ever go to their church, and members of the family start choosing sides, now the real problems start. Once the home is cluttered with the stuff of this world, we start to compromise on every other issue. And the same is true of members in the house of God. Every next generation will always go one degree further than the last until we have sort of baked it into the pie. John Wesley said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And God said, what one generation allows, it'll be visited on the next generations to the children and grandchildren. 
as you prepare for Christmas and gather around the tree, take inventory, right? It's the time we do that. We start to think about our life. We start to think about circumstances, New Year resolution. So take inventory and see if you've given some room to the devil. And in the areas that you say, well, I can no longer undo that, what are we going to do? Putting an end to that relationship, removing a temptation, renewing your commitment to the Lord, it never gets any easier. If you find yourself with a circumstance that you simply cannot undo, I would follow the advice, the family advice of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. Keep your mouth shut. But, he said, to live a godly life in subjection to the circumstances that you now find yourself so that you, without Speaking a word may win the argument by your godly life, which hangs like an ornament on a tree. Peter describes it as a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great treasure. Not a Christmas message. And it's not a message I will ever preach again probably in my lifetime because so many things of this world are just baked into our life and it makes people uncomfortable when you start opening the book and asking yourself what are God's standards let's pray together Dear Heavenly Fathers we turn our attention to the things of communion we take stock in our life and we ask ourselves about our fellowship with you and our fellowship with you is based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And our relationship with you is based upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that we have in the sense of our gifts, our life, our circumstance, our inheritance... It is all yours. We ask you, Lord, to have your way in our life. For those circumstances of our life that we now live with, Lord, we ask that we might, with a beautiful, quiet, meek, and gentle spirit, live our life in such a way that others may still see Christ in me. To that end and with your blessings, I ask in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and amen.